everybody. Thanks for tuning in to the Coaching Call podcast. On this podcast, we'll cover various types of coaching by trainers in sports, martial arts, fitness, and business. We'll discuss each coach's methods to getting the most out of their respective athletes or clients and how they attempt to change the platform in which they coach. Join us on a fun adventure as we discuss unique coaching styles. Coaching is a universal part of how we get others to get something done. Join your host, Raphael, and his guests on this unique journey in coaching. Hi, I'm Sifu Raphael, and this is the Coaching Call Podcast. If you enjoy this episode, please subscribe and leave a review. This episode was made possible by listeners like you. Clint, thank you so much for being here today, my friend. I am so happy that you're taking this time to share your knowledge with all of us. How are you? I'm doing awesome. Thank you, Sifu, for having me on. You know, I've been looking forward to this call for a long time. We talked a little while back, and my, my uh, youngest son is a first-degree black belt in martial arts, and he's been uh, fortunate enough to where the his master in Taekwondo is now a Sifu in Wing Chun, and so we're nice. we're getting to do both of those. And so I love that you've combined, you know, your 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 love for martial arts with your coaching and everything else, and I just I love it. Yeah, I appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you. But you know what? When we think about it as a martial arts instructor, we actually, and I'm going to say this for all martial arts instructors, every one of us is a therapist as well. A hundred percent. Yeah, there's no question about it. Yeah. I mean, we don't have the title, but. Right, right. You know. Everybody comes with their issues, their problems, their situations. Some pe- sometimes you hear about divorce. Sometimes you hear about their children. Sometimes you're helping the children who are having trouble in school or they're being bullied. There's so many situations that a great martial artist has to start to listen, fully listen to their clients, right? Oh, I, I totally agree. You know, I think part of that is, is you guys are engaging on a physical, emotional, mental and spiritual level. There's, mm. there's nothing untouched. So I think, I think that trust that you build uh, really goes a long way and then being open to that. And then you end up involved in every part of their life. I think it's amazing. It's awesome. Yeah, it's pretty cool. It's pretty cool. I mean, listen, I've been doing martial arts for 47 years, but it feels like I just started yesterday. <laughs> I think it that's really, how you're supposed to feel, right? It, it does. And you know what? And people are like, yeah, this is a question I get asked a lot. Aren't you tired of teaching white belts? I'm like, no, I'm oh. excited. I am so <laughs> excited to teach somebody new and to help them embark on a journey that will change their lives if they stick with it. Yeah. Yeah. Ever. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. It's fun to watch the white belts. I love it. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. So let's let's get into who Clint is. Let's go into let's go way back, Clint. I mean way back. <laughs> when you were, you know, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, one of those years, and what you recall that maybe now you go, huh. I didn't think of it, but that really made an impact on me. Yeah. Gosh, you know, the way I the way I like to tell my story, when we say go way back, fortunately, I only have to go back to the mid 60s. So we're not going back too far. <laughs> um, but, <clears throat> you know, I was born and raised in Southern California. And what I remember about that was it, it just really was a great experience. You know, we 
we're probably, you know, lower middle class as far as an economic status, but you know, we had a, we had a pool in our backyard. Uh, I could go outside. You didn't have to worry about, you know, you could always come home even after dark and never had to worry about anything. And I was involved in football and baseball and uh, things like that. And just, I just remember my young life being a lot of fun, you know, and just enjoying life. But then, you know, there, there was uh, Sifu, a, a thing that happened when I was about 11 or 12, that it's, it's not that I look back today and go, Hmm, wow, that really had an impact. But honestly, it's only been in recent years. I'm 57 now. It's only been in recent years that I've really recognized just how much of an impact that season had on me. Mm. Uh, and so in short, what happened, my parents had me very late. And so by the time I was 11 years old, they'd already been married over 25 years mm. and everything seemed good. You know, I mean, they, I would see them getting fights, stuff would happen, but you know, nothing that at that age I considered to be out of the ordinary. Right. And then one day I ended up finding out that my dad ended up having an affair, which ended up leading to him actually moving out and moving in with this, this other lady who had a son that was a couple years older than me. Um, which was certainly awkward. And I'm not an only child. Uh, I actually have an older brother, but my older brother is almost eight years older. Mm. So by that season of my life, he had actually already moved out, lived you know, eight, nine hours away. So for right, right. all intent purposes, I was alone. And that ended up leading to some really rough circumstances. My mom, who was not, I mean, they, they drank casually, but I wouldn't have called her a heavy drinker leading up to that, but she really didn't know how to cope. And so she started drinking really heavy, uh, suffered from suicidal ideation during, this was about a two year period of my life. Um, tried committing suicide a few different times with pills, but the scariest were one time we were in a, a car and she had been drinking. Of course I was 11, so I had to let her drive. And we were driving down this windy road where I grew up in LA that is quite dangerous. People would, you know, uh, probably once a year, you'd hear about a fatal accident at least. Right. And we went out at about 65 miles an hour and just, just avoided hitting some trees and, you know, and she was trying to take us both out, you know, she was screaming, you know, I'm, I'm done. I'm done. We're just, we're just going to end it. You know, it was just crazy time. And then later on with a, with a handgun, she was going to take her life. And my dad and I, I jumped on top of her on top of the gun and just yelled for her to, you know, please stop, please stop that kind of thing. And so, you know, at that time you just react as a kid. So I didn't really understand what kind of an emotional impact, what kind of trauma um, was actually occurring to me. And so ultimately, you know, it only lasted a couple of years for my parents. They ended up reconciling. Um, there were some other crazy things. We moved, <laughs> we moved from Southern California to literally out in the middle of nowhere, Montana. I oh. went from being a city kid to living on 20 acres on a, on the Bitterroot River in Southern Montana. And that lasted like three months. My dad ended up actually leaving us there and we flew back after selling the house one day. I mean, we just, it was a crazy, crazy season. So the reason why I bring that story up, it was, it was shortly after that, that I began to abuse alcohol and drugs. Gotcha. And, you know, honestly, if it wasn't for the fact that I, I was a, you know, at that level, a, a successful athlete and enjoyed it. I don't know just how deep I would have dove into that lifestyle, but, but that's when it began. And so, you know, 
years later, as other things in life began to occur and I began to make even worse choices, got into really heavy drugs in my 20s, did meth for nine years. You know, when I when I got into those stages of my life, it was really only after I had a major breakthrough and began to realize it. And actually, even though I, I wasn't being coached formally one on one, I had joined a network marketing company at the time. And so we received a lot of coaching through workshops and stuff like that. It was only during that season I began to look back and realize just how much of a, not even a scar, but an open wound was there that was leading me to certain mindsets and behaviors. Crazy. You, you know, I heard the drug addiction. I, I heard all this stuff. But you know what really like punched me was the meth. Yeah. Wow. And for you to come out of that, that's, that's, that's insane. That's insane. And the fact that you came out of it and you, you nine years, that's what I heard. Nine years, man. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's just like really like branded me and thinking, my God, how on earth, <laughs> first of all, uh, I don't, I've never really done drugs. So uh, besides, you know, have a, a drink or something. And I'm not even a heavy drinker. I, I'm. I, you can call me the wuss of drinking. Because <laughs> if it has a little umbrella, I might like it. You know? That's funny. So I'm not, I'm not a heavy drinker. I literally have a bar in my house. And I'm afraid to sometimes offer it to somebody who comes over because I'm like, oh, man, that liquor is going to be bad. It doesn't get <laughs> stale. Yeah, right. So it's like, hmm, I wonder if that wine is any good. And people who don't know me for the holidays and stuff like that will buy me red wine and wine and liquor. I'm like, oh, you know, I really, I'm very appreciative of it. That's right. But they don't know me enough to realize that that's going to sit on my shelf. So sometimes what I do is I go, hmm, what's the, I'm going to somebody's house. And I don't have time to stop, which is the latest one <laughs> that I have. So I can at least share it right. with somebody. Right. Absolutely. So, so remember, um, sometimes it's just knowing somebody before you go ahead and make that kind of gift. Right. <laughs> because what if I was a recovering alcoholic and people just give me that without realizing it? Oh, sure. Absolutely. You know? So sometimes it's, it's just, just taking that minute to, to just find out about somebody. Right. But when you said nine years, math, yeah. I'm like, man, something triggered you besides, you know, everything else to go that to that deep end. And then something had to trigger you to come out of it. Because right. the other day I made a comment to somebody and I said, you know, it was actually on, on Heroes Rising. And I said, and the guy was talking about being in a rut. And I said, yeah, you know, if you dig a grave, which you did with the meth, mm -hmm. you stay in that grave until you make a decision to climb out of it. Otherwise, you'll always, you'll dig deeper and deeper and deeper and one day you may not be able to come out of it, but you found a way out. Yeah, that's so right. I want to know why you went that route. Was it a person? Was it everything that was going on with your parents? Or was it just like, you're like, you're like, just, I wanted to try something different. And then also I want to know how you got out of it. Because this is, this is something for somebody to, to go, 
an aha moment to understand why people do certain things. For me, habits are huge. And being that I, I try to teach people positive habits, it's also how do we get into negative ones? So the floor is yours, my friend. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, first first and foremost, you know, with, with me starting just drug use in general, mm. even though it was not quite as crazy as stuff like, you know, amphetamines and barbiturates and stuff like that in my teen years, that kind of led me in a direction that, that I was willing to experiment with just about anything, you know, which is not mm. something I'm proud of, but that was just right. kind of my personality at that time, you know. And again, I didn't recognize that it was a coping mechanism. You know, so mm. my answer back then would have would have been simply to you. I just like to have fun. But I reckon, you know, <laughs> I mean, that's what my answer would have been. That's and I remember saying answers. that. Yeah. And I remember even saying that over the years, you know, but it was only years later that especially when I began to recognize and, and learn about um, the patterns that happen when you suffer trauma and then when you mm. initiate certain coping mechanisms, how they can get you stuck in a loop. And, you know, then I began to look back and realize that a lot of what happened, you know, during that season of my life was, was an, or had an impact. Mm-hmm. Um, but ultimately, as far as, you know, getting into meth, ultimately, I think how it happened was so in short, I continued my athletic career. I'd blown out my knee, my senior year of baseball. It was, it was an awful situation. Um, really, really, you know, hurt me personally. It was in the first inning of our first game. I was the starting sh- shortstop returning all-star. We had one of the best teams in Southern California, you know, all these, you know, hopes and dreams of what we were going to accomplish that year. And in the first inning, my season was over. So then I rehabbed and a couple of years later at about 1920, uh, same thing happened. It was the seventh game of my sophomore year, junior college. And I blew out my knee even worse, mm. uh, three ligaments, cartilage, tendons, just a catastrophic knee injury. And this is like the mid eighties, 1986. So even surgeries back then weren't as, as uh, productive <laughs> at rehabbing you and, and that kind of thing. So that ended the only dreams I had at that stage of my life, which was, I wanted to use that talent to get a scholarship to a bigger school, a four-year university, and continue my education and continue my career. So when that happened, I didn't know what else to do. Um, At that point, I was still smoking marijuana, things like that, but I wasn't doing meth or anything like that. Mm -hmm. And so I got into the car business at 21 years old. And that was primarily because at that point, I felt like I'm not motivated enough to continue my education without sports. I wish I could change that, but that's just who I was at that time. And so I want to make some money. I had a buddy that I knew that was making good money. So I got into that and that's when I was actually exposed to meth. Mm. And I think, you know, even when you start talking about meth before I go too much further, I don't know if everyone watching this feels the same way I do, but usually you have this immediate prejudice or what you think that looks like. Right. Right. Yeah. And so based on where I grew up and where I lived in Northern California for a number of years as well, which was when the mess started. Uh, that would have been some white guy with a whole bunch of tattoos, rotted out teeth, you know, <laughs> hanging out right. in the park, you know, pushing a bike. I mean, that's, that's what a meth head would have looked like to me. Right. But what I would soon discover through personal experience is, is it could look a lot different as well. Mm. So I was a professional salesperson, you know, I had the shirt and tie and, and, you know, did my job and and paid my bills and all that stuff. But meanwhile, me and, and several other guys would go into the bathroom. We'd snort crank and go back wow. out and, 
you know, car business was crazy. You'd work roughly about 250 hours a week. So it was a pretty major or not, not a week. I'm sorry, but uh, 250 hours a month. It was a, it was a bell to bell kind of job. You go in mm. at eight, you wouldn't leave till eight. And I think part of what would happen is, is we would be so excited about the weekend because once a month you get off on a Thursday night and you wouldn't have to be back until Monday. Mm. And that's when we would do it the most and literally mm. see if again, none yeah. of the stuff, I'm not proud of any of this stuff, gotcha. but it was not uncommon to start partying mm. on Friday and not even go to sleep until Sunday night because oh of the meth use. Yeah. Many oh times. Gosh. And I had, and so I'm bringing that up because my first wake up call, it wasn't the one that caused me to make a decision yet, but it was my first wake up call that, okay, I thought this was like a secret part of my life and things are beginning to unravel. I'd actually taken a customer out on a test drive. He was driving, thank goodness. <sighs> and you know, you're, you're having this conversation. I'm probably talking about features, whatever, small talk. And then all of a sudden what happened was is we're driving. And I, you know, I noticed the landmark that we had just passed because we had a very specific route. So it was the same mm. route over and over and over. Right, right. And then all of a sudden I opened my eyes and we are a couple of miles down the road. So I was literally in the middle of saying something and just blacked out mm. and then came back too. And I kind of looked over at him and it was really hard to tell, you know, he was probably so focused on driving this new car and checking it out that he wasn't paying that close of attention, but I realized what had just happened. I mean, I literally just blacked out on the guy. So you would think that would have been enough, but it wasn't. Mm. Um, but it was a, it was a wake up call. I never forgot that. And it made me think, man, maybe, maybe this isn't such a good idea, you know, but ultimately what I think led to it, the final decision was I got married. Um, this was around, this is the late nineties. And in that marriage, we, we had done some meth together, but the use had really been reduced quite a bit. I wasn't doing it on a daily basis. It was just more, much more recreational, like a Friday mm. night or a Saturday night instead of like during the week. Mm. And I remember I mean, you, as you can imagine, any any marriage that has meth in it was a train wreck. Oh, yeah. And we both drank heavy. We both had lots of just baggage and hurts. And um, I mean, we were I was I'm just going to speak for me. Mm. I was verbally abusive. There were times where we got into shoving matches and, mm. you know, it, it was just an ugly, ugly scene. And I remember one night for whatever reason, we decided, Hey, let's go do it. You know, we, and so we did, we went out, we got some crank, we did our thing. And the next morning, this is exactly what happened. I woke up and it, you know, I felt the physical side of the come down. Right. I mean, I just mm -hmm. didn't, didn't feel good. I felt like crud, but there was just something different that morning. Sifu, there was just something different. And I began to think about my life. And I just did not want to be that guy anymore. I didn't want, mm. you know, this, first of all, anybody who's ever experienced that knows that it's a very consuming thing, not just the use of it, but even acquiring it. There's times where you'll spend hours wow. just sitting in a car in front of some place waiting for, you know, is, is the, is the DEA going to show up at any moment? You know, you mm. put yourself in stupid situations I'm sure, and you'll, and you'll spend hours waiting to get this drug mm. just to go out and finally have 
go to a party that you were supposed to be at hours before, but you know, just, it's just, it's stupid, you know? And that morning I'm just like, I don't want to live like this. I don't want to feel like this anymore. And so I call these courageous decisions in my Mm -hmm. coaching business. I just made a courageous decision that day that as far as meth goes, I'm done. That's it. (laughs) And, and, and that was it. And it really was it cold Turkey, you know, and, and I want to be really sensitive to this because I know walking away from meth like that cold Turkey is not common per se. Mm -hmm. Um, so what I want to be sensitive to is specifically if you're out there right now and this is an issue for you, it's okay to get help. Oh, yeah. You need you need to use any means necessary to get this demon out of your life. Right. But for me, I just I just made a, a courageous decision that day and I was just fed up and and that was it. Wow. That's that's beautiful that that you found the way out. By the way, uh, my good friend, Dana Abbott, uh, you can tell your son he was on here. He's known as the modern. Are you ready? Modern Samurai. He <laughs> is the number one guy in the country. Wow. Who teaches Samurai Sword. So, Dana, That's cool. thank you for joining us. And uh, just let you know, your son know that we are in good company. <laughs> He's a good friend of mine. So That is cool. You know, thinking that the fact that you, and and you know, you said it's okay to ask for help and we need to let everybody know that as well. So basically what you did is you saw the ladder and you climbed it right out of that grave. But a lot of people, they'll see the ladder. They'll see the way out of it and they'll go, nah, I'm not ready or I'm not, this is not for me. Or I like being down where I am. Or they're thinking like, yeah, if I get out, I'll just be back tomorrow. Right. So what you did is you climbed out, but then you, you sealed that grave again, didn't you? Yeah, absolutely. And to your point, I, I completely agree with everything you just said. And I think you have to want something better for yourself. Mm hmm. That's really, at the end of the day, the beginning of all new things, right? You have to want something better for yourself. Other people can't want it for you. You know, even when you talk about coaching, you know, I only work with clients that, that, I mean, we go through a 30-minute call first just to make sure we're a good fit. I mean, I Mm -hmm. won't even work with anybody anymore unless it's pretty obvious up front that they're ready to do the work for them, Mm -hmm. you know? And so I think that was something even... No, I didn't consciously recognize that's what was happening. That was a huge part of me being able to change that element of my life. Cause I should point out, you know, during that season, you, you would ask me, you know, was there one thing or what was, what led up to it? And I really believe there wasn't one thing. It was really kind of a variety of things that were going on in my life at that time. Right. And so part of that was I'd gotten involved with this network marketing nutritional company. I think I mentioned a little bit ago. And so what happened was I started going to these workshops and meetings and even weekend, um, you know, events that they were putting on and things like that. Mm -hmm. And it was a lot of mindset and, and the way you think, and that was new for me. Mm. You know, I had never experienced anything like that up to that point in my life. 
And so that it was during that season that for the first time I began to realize, wow, I don't have to be a victim to all the bad choices and all the stupid things that I've done and this reputation, (laughs) you know, that I've built of being average or mediocre, you know, I really can Mm. be someone great. I really can do something great. I really can influence people. And it was even, it's funny. I'd be curious if this was true for you at a younger age, because obviously, you know, I've been in coaching and mentoring and I was a pastor for 17 years, helping people through that method. Um, You know, I've been doing that for a very long time, but it was even during that season, even when I was doing drugs, that I began to realize that that's what I love to do. I loved to help people. I love to help them work through issues. Mm. Now I was <laughs> not full of wisdom in those days, you know, so I, I had limitations as to you know how much I could help somebody. Right. But I, I seriously even remember doing meth one night and drinking and there was a party going on and everybody left, but this one girl and her husband was actually one of the ones that left. They went to go get more booze and she stayed behind. And so it's just the two of us and, and we're just talking And next thing I know, she starts to let me know about just different challenges that she had in her life. And she ends up exposing that she was, I I was raped when I was, I think, a teenager. And and she's telling me all this stuff. She goes, I can't believe I'm telling you this. My husband doesn't even know this stuff. I've never told anybody. Uh And things like that happened a lot. Mm. People would just open up to me, even at a young age. And so all those things were happening at the same time, too. It's just I wanted to be able to help people. But I didn't realize until my mindset started changing and until I wanted something better for myself Mm. that there was so much more to life. And I I think that was a huge key to put the the heavy drug abuse and stuff behind me. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, when when we think about and for me, it's always. I'm so curious. About the person in front of me, always. Like, I want to know more about you, right? Because for you not only to have come out of that, and you did it on your own, but then you said never again. And then you realize that even when you were in it, you have what I call active listening, because the only reason this girl opened up to you and told you something that her husband doesn't even know is because you were there to listen. Had you interjected and started speaking and speaking and not letting her talk, you would never have known that, right? So it's a lot of people don't do what we do, which is active listening. To be interested in the person in front of you and what they're saying, that, that's, it's not something that everybody necessarily has but it is something that everybody can definitely develop absolutely you know for me it's just i'm so darn curious man i really yeah. i'm a people watcher that's one yeah i love watching people i love their interactions i sometimes watch people it doesn't matter who they are it doesn't matter what sex they are their religion none of that matters yeah I just want to see how they move. And here's the other crazy thing. I also look at animals because Mm. they too move in peculiar ways. They too will react differently to different situations. So for me, I am, I guess, naturally attracted 
to movement, to ideas, to concepts. And when somebody's telling me their story, man, I sit back and I enjoy what it is that is going on with their life. And if I can share any knowledge, yeah. not everybody wants to hear it either. Right. So you have to know when people want to hear it. Some people go, you know what? I just want to, I wanted an ear. I didn't want a mouthful. Right. And, and some, as a coach, we need to learn that as well. Some coaches, all they want to do is talk, 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 right. and they don't listen to their clients. And I know because I've had coaches like them, like, wait a minute, I told you this. Meanwhile, you're not listening to what I'm saying. So right. adios, sayonara, right? See you later. Because when, when we talk about being a coach or being somebody who just cares, right? It's not about you. It's about them. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. I think I shared the same curiosity as you, you know, now, obviously, as you said, this is a skill you can develop. And even though I had that natural curiosity, I'm a much better active listener today than I was even honestly, two years ago, three years mm -hmm. ago through some things that have happened in my life and, and, and going back you know, it, but I think just that that sincere curiosity about someone's story mm -hmm. does really create, um, if I could even use this word, a level of intimacy in that communication that makes them feel safe mm -hmm. and that they can share something with you, even if even if they're not really wanting to you know, hear anything in return, as you said. And as coaches, that's so critical. You know, I almost laughed out loud when you talked about coaches that just talk, 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 you know, they talk, 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 talk. So they never actually hear anything about that person that matters <laughs> and then Correct. give them assignments that they have, they're not committed to, you know, because it doesn't match where they're at and what, mm -hmm. you know, it's just, it's funny how that's not coaching to me. Uh, no. Coaching to me is more about asking a ton of great questions than it is anything else. Mm-hmm. You know, I tell my clients all the time when we get started, if it's if it's a one on one situation is just simply listen, you need to know this is all about you. As you said, your point, mm -hmm. this is all about you. At the end of the day, my life is not going to change due to our interaction because I'm already on my path. But if I can help you, that's what we're going to do. But at the end of the day, you're going to have to decide what you're going to be willing to do and what you're not. Mm -hmm. And so we're going to we're going to dig, we're going to uncover some things, but when we decide on an action item, it's because you're committed to it, not because I am, <laughs> you know, right, right. but that all happens with, you know, active listening and hearing people's stories and, you know, Sifo, I think one of the keys, I'd, I'd love to hear your take on this too, is for me over the years, the more stuff that I've been through, just the gut punches of life and the ups and the downs and things like that has made me even more compassionate. And I think I've had, I have even more empathy today than I did even a few years ago. And so, man, when you combine empathy and compassion with an active listening skill, it's a dynamic duo and mm. you you're really positioned to really help a lot of people. What are your thoughts on that? Well, uh, sp speaking from personal experience, I was abused as a child, so mm. I didn't know love. I didn't know love. I thought I was, uh, you know, I was hated by everybody. 
mm. um, the physical abuse, the mental abuse, all that stuff. And at 18 years old, I said, I, I'm done with this. And that's when my true compassion, I mean, I had compassion all along. Um, I just didn't have it enough for me. Mm. Right. So once I said, you know what? I matter. I count. And all these people that abuse me, maybe they don't know what they're doing. And that's when I started thanking every one of them mm. because they taught me how not to treat other people. They taught right. me how to be a better person. They taught me the value of life without intention. That was not their intention. Their intention was to hurt me. Right. So, and, and, Maybe it was their intention or maybe they didn't know any better. Right. So where do we go from there? I could have become an, uh, Denise, thank you for joining us as well. So I'm going to put Denise's, she talks about active listening, right? And is 100% key to helping individuals. Absolutely, Denise. So for me, thank you for being with us today. I appreciate you. For me, it was always how do i find i'm a hugger because of <laughs> not being hugged or or shown love as a child right it, it it just it wasn't what my parents had in store they had i'm number 10 of 12 so you can imagine wow wow but that yeah. doesn't give an excuse that i'm right. not excusing them right because they should have loved every kid or don't have it right so i could have been born into a different family who knows right or not at all so right when I think about the opportunities that we have to change somebody's life because of our actions, the way we treat them with compassion, with love. I, like I said, I'm a hugger next time. When I see you in person, buddy, I'm going to give you a big <laughs> hug, right? Because I'm also, I mean, I'm inviting you to New York because we're having a big event. It's called Heroes Rising Apex. And we are having amazing speakers and Possibly you'll be one as well because I'm bringing all these people together mm. to New York, people who are making a difference in the world. I'm having people from all over the world coming. I have people from Singapore, from South Africa, from Australia, from countries I can't even pronounce. They're coming, <laughs> right? Everybody's excited to come and impart their knowledge with someone else because they're givers. Yeah. I love to associate with people who are not in it for what's in it for me, more of how can I be of help to you? How can I service you in a way that will fulfill you and at the same time will fulfill me? Yeah. But most importantly, it's about you. So, that's that's my short answer. You probably yeah. don't want to hear my long answer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we all we all have those. Yeah, yeah I try yeah. I try to avoid that as well. Do me a favor, move to your right a little bit. You're right. Actually, let me do this too. Maybe that a little more. Is that a little better? T tiny, a little bit more. Beautiful. The reason is because I want to zoom in on you. Bam! There you are. <laughs> oh, that, I'm I'm big. I'm too big. So let me let me do this. I got tricks up my sleeve. So there we go. <laughs> so you changed your life. And in changing your life, I call that a transformation, right? 
you transformed from a drug user, a junkie, if you will, somebody who probably blacked out more times than you can probably remember. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Right. So you, life was passing you by. But when you said no more, I am transforming. I am now going to be awake for my life. <laughs> I'm going <laughs> right. right. to be present. Right. I think that alone speaks volumes because a lot of people, they may not be a drug user, but they are sleeping through their life. They're not chasing their dreams because they, they allow people to say, your dreams, no good. You need to go to work. You need to provide for your family or you need right. to do this or you need to do that. Your dreams are for later. But what if there is no later? Right. We don't know when we're going to die, do we? Nope. Yeah. We're not guaranteed so, anything. That's right. So because of the beautiful transformation you made, you you said your son is a first degree black belt. Mm -hmm. And his teacher is, is went into becoming a Sifu, which means that his his teacher also has gone through transformations as right. well. Right, right. And everybody who stays at the status quo will never transform. So it's people who are always seeking more, who are seeking knowledge. So here's a quote that I, I, I posted something today, right? And I put, I didn't come to this world to be average. Mm, right. I came to make a difference, right? I was born average, right? You and I were both born average, but it's our actions that elevate us that put us at that level of where we can change. Listen, for me, maybe I don't change the whole world. How about if I change one? Yeah. How about if I change one person's life, one person's world? So it's important for us. Denise, thank you for, for being here. Once again, powerful to those who didn't have good intentions, right? I feel so blessed to be exposed guess, yeah. to this dialogue. It is lifting my spirits today. Denise, thank you for being here with us. Right? Yeah, thank you, Denise. Hello. <laughs> yes, and howdy, howdy, right? And that's what my good friend Dana said, howdy. He, I mean, I, wow. I am blessed to know amazing individuals i am blessed that you and i have this connection now and a connection that we will have forever because i will make sure and i know you will too that we stay connected that we do things to impact our world when we think about the changes your life you have a beautiful son you would not be able to to give this child the correct upbringing that for him to become a first degree black belt, had you still been on drugs, right? What, right. what would he be had you not transformed? Yeah. I, honestly, I don't even know if he would exist, you know, because he might've listened, listen, people on drugs still me. have kids, right? <laughs> yeah. They have baby, true. Drug no, babies, right? No, so. that's, that's absolutely true. You know, I just think back, the marriage that I was in during that time, you know, we ended up divorcing about a year after the experience 
mm. that I had where I was yeah. done with drugs. Yeah, and, right. you know, right around that same time, this is important to bring into my story as well as, you know, up to that point, I didn't really have much of a compass either in terms mm. of just spiritually. And so uh, right around the age of 31, so this is about a year after I decided to quit using meth period is when I accepted an invitation to go to a church because of some people I knew that, you know, there was just something about their life. They seemed to have the ability to have their peace, even when things were not going their way. I'll just say it that mm -hmm. way. Right. And so I ended up going to church one day just because I was curious to watch them. <laughs> I mm -hmm. mean, it's seriously, I wasn't looking for faith. I wasn't looking for God, but ultimately that day I ended up deciding to have a relationship with God. And so that's when my faith journey began, which that's has definitely been. been hugely foundational um, mm. through the different bumps and bruises and things in life as well. And so, you know, we did not have children in that first marriage. And part of part of my journey, and if I could back up one second, you said something I thought was so powerful. You know, when you're talking about even the martial arts, one of the things I love about the martial arts is, is you, you never arrive, right? You never arrive. I know our, our Sifu here took him 10 years to get this red sash. And yet one of the main things he taught us that day when we were at his ceremony is, is this, is, he said, this is the beginning, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, for most of it's like, we're like 10 years. Oh my gosh. Finally. He's like, no, I'm just <laughs> now to a point where I'm truly beginning, you know? And mm. I think that's beautiful because that's our personal journey. Right. There's a lot of talk about destiny. I I'm okay with it. I mean, it's a term that you can use, but man, if we just focused on the journey, how much, mm. how much would we change, you know? And so I want to point that out. I think saying that is really, really important. We need to recognize that we're on a journey and that we're never finished, that we're, we're either growing or we're staying static. And if we're staying static, that doesn't last long before we're regressing. Right. So right. really there's only two options moving forward or moving backwards. Right. So after that divorce, I made the decision that I, that I just really felt like I was going to get another opportunity to become a husband mm. and that at some point I was going to have an opportunity to have children. Beautiful. And so I spent Sifu the next two, two and a half years at least reading and studying everything I could find to develop myself personally, um, to read about what does a healthy husband look like? Mm. What does a healthy marriage look like? Because even though my parents, they ended up reconciling after that whole crazy experience I described earlier in our conversation, and they ended up married for 65 years. By the time they both passed away, they both passed away about eight years ago, about yeah. six months apart from each other. Wow, but, incredible. But, but, the, but the characteristics of their marriage were not necessarily great. You know, their communication mm. skills weren't great. Mm. There was just elements of their marriage that wasn't great. So, you know, I felt like I needed to learn this stuff. I think a lot like you, I'm just so blown away by your story because I didn't know that part of it. And, you know, again, I, I would commend you just for you to have that switch flip and make the decision that I heard you say grateful <laughs> and gratitude is a powerful force. Mm -hmm. You know, you became grateful that not what happened to you, but it made you see some things that you knew you didn't want in your life. And so you use that as a catalyst, you know? Right. And so that's kind of what happened to me in the sense of getting 
meth out of my life. And then when that divorce ended in utter failure, I suffered shame. I've suffered, you know, all the things that go along with the divorce that you just, you feel lesser than you feel like you, you know, you should, what, what should I have done different? All that stuff. So I used that as a catalyst. So by the time I met my bride now, we've been married almost 20 years. It'll be 20 years in oh, April. Good. Congratulations. Thank you. And, and with my sons, I have, I have two sons on this side of eternity and one who's in heaven, which I'm sure we'll probably talk about him a little bit a little yes. later. Yes, definitely. But, but when I think about to your question of, you know, what would I have been like back then with my sons, it, it would be a completely different life. I mean, had I actually had them in that state I was in and, and I would, again, say not just drug use, but all of the faulty mindsets mm-hmm. and just polluted ways of, of thinking about how to respond to the bumps and bruises of life. Um, there's no way he would be where he is today. Right. There's just no way, you know, and it's, could he have, and my middle son, could, could they have circumvented that once they were out of our house and like you and, and like I did, you know, change their life. Absolutely. But it would have had nothing to do with me. Mm-hmm. You know, w- when we think about intentions, my ex-wife, I wouldn't marry her hmm. until she decided it was the right time to have a baby. And then I planned it. Once, once she decided because I was going to leave her because I wanted kids. I'm number 10 of 12. Hello. I need kids <laughs> in my life. Yeah. So if it was up to me, I would have had 20, but it wasn't up to me. Right. So when she finally, it took seven years and I was, I was like, you know what? I need wow. to find somebody else. So she finally said, you know what? I think I now want kids. And I said, great. Let's, let's set a date to get married, but it has to work around your cycle I'm, i was crazy because i wanted kids i planned our honeymoon i was with the, i was with the travel agent say no this day doesn't work this the, no this is her cycle and was, wow the first time she heard this she's like what are you doing she, i said i'm planning my child on my honeymoon and it happened wow it happened so my intention was to have this beautiful person come into our lives. And, and this kid is just an incredible. And when he was little, everybody said, my God, we all think our babies are beautiful. There's, I've never seen a parent who goes, my kid's ugly, right? <laughs> Imagine you go into a room and you go, everybody who's a parent, raise your hand. Okay. Now, everybody, raise your hand, keep your hand up if your kids are ugly. Right. How many parents are going to keep their hands up, right? So practically nobody, unless unless that kid has angered the parent that day, right? <laughs> but what a lot of people said to me is that your son, he's an old soul. Mm. He's a deep thinker. You can see that from just his actions. And it may have been not me, not her, but it is what, and you believe in God and I believe in God. It's what God brought into our lives to not only help her along, but to help me along as well. Because yeah. my intention was to have this beautiful child. And I did. Um, I have two boys. I'm blessed, right? But for me, my intention was not just to be a dad and say, yeah, you know, I, I donated my sperm. That's it. No. Right. 
I was an extremely active parent more than she was. So if we went to a party or a gathering, I was the one changing the diapers. I was the one tending to the baby. And she, I would go, no, you go socialize. You go, I got the baby. Because I was loving every second. But when we think about the intentions of our life, who do we want in our lives? Who do we associate with? Where do we go? So I do want to talk about the guitars behind you mm. <laughs> because I know they're going to touch upon something and I'm going to blow up the screen a little bit so we can go into the, and when you told me this, it was, it was, it really touched me because I told you that I want to learn to play guitar. And I was like, I was admiring the guitars behind you yeah. and I did not expect what came out of your mouth next. So I still admire the guitars behind you, but tell me about them. Yeah. Well, they're beautiful, right? I mean, they're, oh, they're gorgeous right now. They're decor and they're pretty beautiful decor, but. And I asked you if you knew how to play them. <laughs> I know. I know. And so that's, that's the embarrassing part about this. You know, everybody that has me on either a zoom call or any kind of an interview sees them, of course. And they're always like, are you a rock star? <laughs> yeah. like, I'm not yes, you that are. <laughs> cool. <laughs> At least not that kind of cool. Right. But uh, the, the red one, which is a Les Paul, was a very interesting event in my life. You know, I, uh, I mentioned earlier that I was a pastor for 17 years. And so, you know, did a lot of speaking and things like that. And there was one morning where I, I had spoke and a gentleman approached me at that. It was after I was done. I kind of walked to my seat, which was along the front and everything was ending. The guy came up to me and he's he was this like biker looking dude. I mean, he had the whole gear, you know, he, he drove a Harley. He had the, the hell's angels kind of vest. He had the tattoos. Right. He had the long hair. I mean, he had the like complete look. Right? right. Right. And he's, he's like weeping. And I'm like, Hey, and he, he goes, I just want to introduce myself. My name's Mike. And I'm like, you know, what's going on? He says, listen, when you spoke two months ago, so already I was, it was kind of funny because I was thinking, Oh, this guy's responding to what I just said. And it wasn't at all. <laughs> <It's> <laughs> like, but he had been at a different talk I'd done. Mm. And he said, you had said, and I don't even remember, you know, what it was that impacted him, but he just said, it's, it's changed my life. And there's something that I need to do. He said, I really feel like God is telling me I need to give you this. And he wasn't holding anything in his hand. Mm. So he turns around and in the seat behind him, because he had laid it down, I didn't even notice, was this you know big hard case, a guitar hard case. And it had all these like roadie stickers on. It was actually the case I have. I, I could pull it out. I mean, it's really cool looking. Right. And so he grabs that and he comes over with it and he opens it and he pulls out this beautiful Les Paul. Mm. And he said, I'm supposed to give you this. Huh. And I was just blown away, you know, up to that mm. particular stage of, of my life and speaking in front of people. And I've had people want to give me things, but <laughs> nothing quite like that. Right. And the emotion on him was just so, so deep. And so I tried, I tried to talk him out of it for a minute or two, because I just felt like it was just too much, you know, mm. but he was very adamant and made it very clear that no, this is something he absolutely had to do and that there was actually something in it for him. Mm. Like he really felt like in doing this act, 
he was going to get even more of what he felt like God was trying to show him. So, so I received it. So that's how I ended up in possession of the guitar. And for a number of years, it mostly just stayed in a case. And every now and then, if I, you know, wanted to tell the story or whatever, I would break it out. But years later, my oldest son, Gabriel. So at that point he was 15, 16, maybe. Um, The funniest thing happened. My wife and I were in our living room and, you know, our house isn't small, but it's not a mansion either. But we're on the other side of the house from where his room was, which is actually where I am now. And all of a sudden I hear, and I wish I could remember, see if I wish I could remember the actual song because I'm kind of an 80s rock kind of guy. But I heard this 80s rock riff, like Stairway to Heaven or something, you know, Leonard Skinner. I don't know what it was, but I hear it. And I turn to her and I'm like, did you hear that? She was, I did. That sounded live. I'm like, it did. (laughs) So we go (laughs) run into his bedroom open the door and he's got the Les Paul he's sitting on the bed and he's doing this riff and he's doing it really well. And we're like, when did you learn to play guitar? (laughs) We had no idea that he'd even been trying, you know? And so anyway, it was Gabriel who started playing it. And so it was just really cool. He said it was YouTube videos, by the way. So nice. Amazing. The world we live in today. Right. Mm-hmm. He'd started watching YouTube videos and that also speaks to his personality too, because he was one of those people that when he wanted to do something, there was no barrier. He was Beautiful. going to find a yeah. way and it was going to happen, you know? Mm-hmm. So Gabriel played it and, you know, we may get into his story here shortly. Um, he passed away and in a tragic situation. And so, Mm. you know, after that, he had actually already begun to display these guitars. And so I just, that was one thing I left in this room, you know, it's been a little bit about three and a half years ago. So we've made Mm. some changes in here. You know, we've been very intentional not to make it like a shrine or anything like that, but there's just a couple. I I want to say, I'm sorry for your loss because that's, that's so tragic. Yes. But I, I know that he's still with you. He is. And that's one of the ways, you know, I mean, when you, when you, when you lose a child, you don't need triggers. Mm-mm. You know, I, I think about him multiple times every single day, but you know, certainly when, when I look at the guitar, it puts a smile on my face mm-hmm. because I just remember, you know, watching him do it and being so impressed and right. thinking, thinking what a wuss I was that I never <laughs> learned how to do it. You know, <laughs> you know, I, I got to tell you, um, when when somebody loses a child, it's beyond devastating. Hmm. And, and sometimes that's where the faith really, really comes in because a lot of people will always say, if God does have love for us, why does he take people's children away? Why 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 doesn't he take the bad people away? <laughs> right? right. But it, it um th- there's a reason for everything and and I don't know the reason you know and and you know I, I wish I can give you a big hug right now I lost my sister mm-hmm. um there's a picture of her and I holding hands and from what I gather I must have been three three maybe three and a half when she went maybe three when she passed she was a year older than me but what I gather from my family is that she and I held hands everywhere everywhere and i think the reason i'm alive today is Mm. because she's always been with me wow i consider her my guardian angel i mean literally i've almost died several times 
I've been in a coma. I've been a, a lot of different things. And I think that she is my guardian angel. I truly believe it. Yeah. And, you know, when, when we have a, a, an amazing human being touch our lives and then they're no longer with us, but they are. Right. Yeah. So your son yeah. is still with you. Yeah. And even if you got rid of the guitar, you would still have him. He's in your heart, in your mind, in your soul. Yeah. Right. So um, I just want to, you know, let you know that I, I care what you're going through. And if anything, you ever want to talk, you know, my no you got my number. You can call yeah. me anytime. Man. Thank you. Yeah, Thank absolutely. You. Yeah. You know, it, it's it is. It's a devastating experience. Um, mm hmm. I want to, I want to, I'm going to delve into that a little bit. Yeah, please. But do. I want to, but I want to back up just a hair because I think it's so important with, you know, where we have been in this last three and a half years, the place we are at mentally, emotionally, and spiritually when this tragedy happened and all that, you know. Mm -hmm. So, as I mentioned, you know, when I was 31 is when I gave my life to God. And so it was a few years later after my divorce, after studying, you know, how to be a good husband, all that stuff that my bride and I came together. And so, you know, over the course of our marriage, which is just under 20 years, you know, we, mm -hmm. we went through a miscarriage together and that's not a good thing. No. You know, none, none of the things we're going to talk about are good things, but out of that, I do believe that there was something within that, that drew us closer together. And there was an intimacy of us having to go through that mm -hmm. together. There's something about, hard times when when you love another person and you have that deep bond and you go through it together there's just something about that that even deepens mm. the intimacy so at the very least that happened right and then you know gabriel gabriel was born at three pounds 12 ounces a couple of months early mm. so she had a, a pregnancy disease called preeclampsia so they had to take him early because she was beginning to her blood pressure just skyrocketed and they were going to have to take him. Otherwise they were both going to be in danger. Right. Then we went. So, so there was that situation for her. And then when we actually went to have our second child, that's when we had the miscarriage. Then mm -hmm. shortly after we had our middle son, Joel, who went full term. And so, you know, we're thinking life is good. Right. She has him. Um, she was stuck at a, like a two for 12 hours. So they mercilessly finally just said, we're just going to have to do a C-section again. So I'm thinking, you know, you can put yourself there, you know, how much you love kids too. I'm in the room with my son, Joel, and the nurse is cleaning him up and I'm going through that whole experience. And it's just like, this is amazing. You know, it was awesome. And then all of a sudden they come in and the medical staff, you know, they do a good job of, of acting professional and not mm -hmm. trying to show their hand but they pulled me back into the waiting room that she was in because she wasn't coming out of the anesthesia mm. and that went on for some time. And so they wow. were, they were helping, they were asking me to help try to keep her awake and talk to her. And mm. it was scary. It was oh, really yeah. scary. You know? So we I went through that. Yeah. So, yeah. so that was, you know, another little thing that we went through. And then you know, when we had Liam, this is going to sound funny now, but you said there are no, no parent thinks any child is ugly. There is an exception when they're born <laughs> yes. that was he was born she actually ended up sick again during the mm. pregnancy and at six months 
when it a full blown help syndrome, which is basically when preeclampsia goes to another level mm. and your major organs start shutting down. Mm. So he was born three months early at one pound, 14 ounces. Oh my gosh. So when he came out, he literally looked like this little alien. It was, it's scary. Yeah, right, and it's right. actually very scary. Um, so we went through that whole season as well. And then just, you know, the, the normal stuff in life, if I could say it that way, you know, she suffered right, right. a severe spiral fracture of her femur out mm. on a remote lake uh, during another season of our life. And mm. that's a whole other crazy story. And, Oof. you know, she yeah. survived that, you know, fortunately her arteries weren't severed by the bones and just crazy deal. So we've mm. been through stuff. Right. right. And in each and every one of those situations, there was always a lesson. There was always something good that God brought mm -hmm. out of it. Mm -hmm. So we had that as part of our foundation. You know, for us, that wasn't just this religious thing. It was just the pattern we saw in our life that no matter what harm or, or bad things came our way, that somewhere in it, mm -hmm. God was going to turn something good out of it. Yeah. And so, so that was our life. And then fast forward, you know, Gabriel, who I already talked about a little bit with the guitar, you know, he was a force of nature. He was one mm. of those kids that had strong communication skills at a very young age, you know, at eight years old, flew in a small plane with his uncle Danny and mm. came out of that. He's like, I want to be a pilot, you know, and we're just, <laughs> oh, that's great. We're glad you had a great time, you know, thinking next week you're going to want to be a fireman or, you know, a, right, a right. CEO or something. And, but he didn't, he hang, he hung on to it. It was just like, mm. no, I'm going to fly planes. So by the time he was 14, he actually had the opportunity to first get in a four-year aviation program in the high school that we have here, which is not typical. It was, we felt like not that in was, high school. <laughs> no, no. There's only a couple of districts that I know of today anyway, that even have a four-year aviation program an educational mm. component. Mm -hmm. And so we felt like that was the favor of God when we moved here because we had just mm. moved back from Washington state when all these opportunities for him to fly began to just come seemingly out of nowhere. Right. Um, during that time, his freshman year, also he joined a club called Tango 31 Aero Club, which in short is this beautiful nonprofit that was put together by a guy named Kevin Lacey. He is kind of an old salty pilot. He probably won't like me saying that, but he's a, just <laughs> this salty old, you know, his, some listeners may actually recognize that name because he mm. was the star of the show airplane repo, which was on at least discovery mm. channel. I can't remember what else. Okay. So this is a guy who literally repos Learjets and, and, and yeah, <laughs> wow. and every, and every kind you can possibly think of from little things to the ones in Alaska that you know, I can't think of the name right now, but the ones that you land on the water, yeah. you know, to a Learjet, you know? So he started this club for kids so that they wouldn't have to work so hard or maybe never achieve their dream of becoming a pilot because of finances. Right. And so ultimately uh, you, you get an opportunity to fly through that club through sweat equity. So for a couple of years until he was like 14 to 16, he had to work his butt off and they worked on engines. They did oil changes. They painted, mm. they did, they put together, you know, entire aircraft that got brought in. It was really wow. an amazing thing. So he's living this dream. See, mm. and, and, and we're under the favor of God. There was no other way to see it. He literally, by the time he got his license at 17, which he achieved, mm. We only put out of pocket 300 plus dollars 
for the exam. He had earned a thousand dollar scholarship his freshman year and it paid for everything because Kevin had free flight instructors and wholesale Mm. fuel and all this stuff. So everything was just screaming favor, 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 favor. This is really important for where I'm about to go. So things are good. September 23rd, 2019. By now he's about three months shy of his 18th birthday. Um, at that stage, it's all about the hours. You know, they, every mm-hmm. pilot, doesn't matter what age they are, any new pilot is just wanting to gain hours. So we had a friend that was attending the University of Arkansas, was here in McKinney, Texas, where we, we live just outside of Dallas. Over the weekend, he flies her up there. And then on his return trip, he got about 20 minutes out of Fayetteville, Arkansas. And what we know now, the NTSB did a uh, an investigation like they do all plane crashes and ruled that he suffered from spatial disorientation. A unexpected Mm -hmm. weather system came through a little mountainous region he was flying over and he lost his way. Uh, Same thing that happened to the Kobe Bryant pilot. So some of your listeners, or most of our Mm -hmm. listeners should be aware of that. And he lost his life chasing his dream, you know, living Mm -hmm. his dream really is the better way to say it. So (sighs) devastating blow, life-changing blow. Our lives will never be the same. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things that I talk about, uh, I, I wrote a book that we may talk about later, but in the book and what I talk to other people about often is, is there's no such thing as moving on from losing a child. You don't move on. Mm-hmm. Now yeah. you can, you can learn how to move forward with your life. And I right. suggest to you that you must, mm-hmm. but you don't move on. So he left this gaping hole and to your you know question earlier where we talk about you know how do you respond to these things how how do you how do you not want to blame god you, you, didn't, you, didn't, you yeah. didn't say this but you know how do you not want to blame god well i did say that you know, or did you say that yeah okay <laughs> yeah sorry so you did say that and that's you know a very legitimate question and one that anybody mm. that is faced with this kind of a life changing tragedy will ask themselves no question about it. But the reason why I took the long road to get to this story is, is we had seen a pattern over the course of a lifetime of circumstances we never would have chosen. Mm-hmm. And somehow good eventually evolving from that. And so what happened was that very first morning we were faced with a decision. And this is what I believe was was paramount to the posture that we have taken and it has allowed us to recalibrate over and over and over when we have been challenged with the loss and the pain and all the things that come with losing your own dreams you know mm-hmm. we had dreams for his life <laughs> vanished into thin air you know all those things are never going to materialize on this side mm-hmm. so that morning i was faced with telling my two sons, other sons, um, who at that time were nine and 14, what had happened. They had slept through the night. I won't take everybody through the long, grueling uh, experience we had that night. It was about eight, nine hours long from the time we knew he had disappeared to getting the official word from the coroner Mm. that he was indeed gone. So the boys came out and we sat down and I, of course, let them know what happened. Honestly, see if I don't remember what I, or how I, how I said he passed away. I don't remember Mm. that. It's a blur. 
uh, and they responded the way you would imagine. There was a lot of wailing and tears and, you know, screaming. And it was just, it was a nightmare. But at, at some point, you know, once our emotions leveled out a little bit, I really felt like God had given me um, not a formula, but I, I just keep using the word compass. Mm-hmm. He gave me a compass to, to, to talk to them and say, this is how we're going to start. And so I said, boys, you know, I've, I've seen a lot, mm-hmm. you know, my 17, I didn't say exactly this way, but my 17 years of pastoring, helping a lot of people through things similar to this, you know, losing and then seeing the marriages implode and then seeing the families implode due to tragedies. I said, we have two choices. We can choose to allow this tragedy to become our identity. We can be so focused on the death, the tragedy of the death, that it's mm-hmm. a plane crash, that all the things that we're going to miss now, all the birthdays, the holidays, the marriage, the kids, the, you know, fill in the blank, all of those experiences. If that becomes our identity, then we are going to be locked into this tragedy and we are going to be shadows of who we are created to be. But there's a second choice. And that second choice is we're going to choose life. And what that means is we are going to choose to live the way your brother lived. Mm. He attacked life. I love to joke. I love to joke nowadays that, you know, everybody loves t-shirts with, I got my big bull brave logo right here uh, with sayings on it. Right. I mean, people make millions of dollars with the right shirt that says the right thing. Mm -hmm. If I had one that, that identified who he was, it would be what's next because that's, what I he was it. all about. Life was I an adventure. Was yeah. Everything was an adventure. The guitars, he, he uh, taught himself photography. And I wow. have, you can't see all the way around here, but we have some amazing photographs of some of the stuff that he took. Mm. Uh, so there was, there was just nothing that was ever going to hold him back yeah. from achieving and living his dreams. Yeah. That's so we talked about that. We talked about that for a minute. And I said, that's what we're going to do. We're going to live life like Gabriel did. And so we're going to choose instead to honor his life Mm. rather than get trapped in his death. That's beautiful, man. I got to tell you, that's beautiful. It was huge. Now, you know, people listening right now, especially if you have suffered something like that, I need to make this very clear. That is not something that removes pain. I'm not Mm -hmm. talking about that we still suffer pain and we will for the rest of our lives. I I've said this many times. It's not even a goal for us to eliminate the pain of his loss because that pain represents the great love we shared mm-hmm. and who he was to us in our lives. So, and you know, this anything in life, there's, there's pain involved in everything you want to get in shape. There's pain involved now, poor comparison, <laughs> but, yes. but pain can become a catalyst. Right. And so that's the decision we made. And, mm. It has really helped us, even though we have, we still suffer from the pain and there's times where it it's, you know, if I could say it affects us emotionally differently at different times. Mm. Um, And that was part two. If I could share that really quickly too, part two of that conversation was, is we didn't know what grieving was going to look like. Mm -hmm. So I told him, I said, listen, nobody does. Nobody knows, knows. even though I've helped individual experience it completely, you know? And so I had that understanding. So I think that was an advantage to that degree. I had an Mm. understanding of, 
of all the wrong places where pain could take us. Mm. And so I just told him, I said, we're, we're going to grieve together. And I don't care if you're pissed off and angry. I don't care if you're sad and you want to cry. I don't care if you feel like you don't want to get out of bed that day. Doesn't matter what any one of us is going to experience at any given moment during this journey that we're on, you know, this, this new part of our journey, right. it's okay, but we're going to do it as a family. And what's not okay is to do it alone. So we mm. made a commitment and that was in seafood. This is really important to point out. They were nine and 14. Mm-hmm. This was not a commitment where we told them, okay, you guys need to come talk to us or you need to be free with your emotions whenever they hit and it's going to be okay. And we're going to let you, and, and we're not going to you know, try to hold you if you're crying and tell you, mm-hmm. stop, stop, stop. It's going to be okay. We're going to let you experience that. But I'm the man of the house. I'm the tough guy here. So mm-hmm. you're not going to see me do that. I'm going to, I'm going to go behind closed doors and I'm going to hide those emotions from you guys because I need to look like I'm in charge and I need to look like I can carry the weight of this family. And that wasn't it. It was, it was a two way street and we've held true to that. We've held true. I, I to think that. that's what, what made you guys stronger as a family. If I, if I'm listening correctly, yeah. because had you and your wife gone on your own and, and, and grieved alone, it, may have not made you guys, I can only tell that you guys are a strong family. And, yeah. And it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. Absolutely. There's no question. You know, it's, that's been a huge part of it because again, mm-hmm. you know, the pain is still there oh, yeah. and life hasn't been perfect since that happened. We've had more punches in the gut and things that have happened over the course of that time. Two years after Gabriel passed, this is a little over a year ago, my middle son, Joel, who by then was driving, hit a median on one of our major highways here in mm. Dallas at 75 miles an hour mm. and it flipped his car five times and he should have died. Yeah. Uh, everybody on the scene, the, the EMTs, the police, they couldn't believe he not only walked out of it, but he only had a little scratch. His wow. car was completely destroyed. You'll, mm. if you saw the picture, you would go, they didn't walk away from that. Mm. So we were grateful clearly that he walked away Gabriel from holding him on. Well, there's there's an interesting <laughs> there's an interesting That's how story. I see it, you know, we could go a very interesting way with that right there. And, yeah, and, but that that that's my thought. You know, it's, yeah. um, Gabriel uh, came into your lives to show you. Uh, this is what I'm gathering, and, and tell me if I'm wrong or right. And maybe there is no wrong or right, but I'm gathering that Gabriel came into your lives to teach you how to live, and then he left to let you live. And therefore he protected your other son during that time. That's I I see. I see Gabriel as, as the angel to you guys. (laughs) And and he is, you know, Mm. and I think to, to your point there, I think things are always bigger and greater than we can, surmise than we can come up with. Mm-hmm. So I'm sure it's greater than even what you just said, but that's very true. What mm-hmm. you just said, um, he changed my life and mm-hmm. even the trajectory of it in many ways. And I am going to share this really fast, a very fascinating thing happened that, you know, this happened very late at night. So we didn't even see the car that night. I actually went and picked him up with the EMTs and the police who were actually at a, a location close to where actually the actual wreck was. Mm. So I didn't see the car until the next day we were driving out to go see the car at the wrecking yard. And Joel made the comment. 
that I really think Gabriel was with me. Mm. And I don't know how or what, how that works, but I really feel like he was with me. And so, you know, you're always trying to recognize, and we don't need to go off into the weeds with this topic, but what does that look like, you know, with heaven and earth and, and what's going on around us that we can't even see, you know, all those things. And so we just had a conversation on the way out. We're kind of like, okay, okay, well, you know, maybe, maybe he did, maybe he was, and Mm -hmm. we just don't know what that looks like. Well, we get to the car and again, it was, it was incredible to see it. We wept. All of mm. us wept when we actually saw the car because he he shouldn't have walked away from it. Mm. And I'm, I'm doing a little walk around because we're just there to see if there was any belongings left in the car that we need to pull because the car was completely told. Right. And I opened the Now, interestingly enough, he did have a passenger with him and he walked away without a scratch either. Mm. His side of the car was much more intact. Joel's side was completely collapsed. Mm. I opened the door. And there was a cross that Gabriel, he had a cross necklace, the stainless steel cross necklace. He wore it everywhere he went. He never took it off. He didn't take it off to shower. He didn't take it off to go swimming. He didn't take it off for anything. And oddly enough, (laughs) the night of his wreck, of his crash, we don't even know why and even when he did it, but he was staying the night with two of his dear friends that he flew with that Mm. lived at that airport. You know, there's a lot of people that actually live on the airport. Mm. And a couple of days after his crash, they brought his car home to us. So we wouldn't have to go pick it up. Mm. And he reaches into his pocket. His name is Alex. He reaches in his pocket and he goes, Oh, by the way, he goes, it's been a couple of days. I don't know how we missed it, but this was on our counter this morning and he drops into my hand, this necklace. Wow. So Joel took that necklace, you know, his, his brother Mm -hmm. was his best friend at that point. So it was, you know, it was something that held him close. Well, fast forward to this wreck two uh, two years later, Joel couldn't wear the necklace because he constantly broke necklaces. (laughs) So so he had put this, this little cross in his uh, sunglass holder. Mm above the, you know, the windshield. Right. I open the car door on the passenger side and the cross is sitting in the passenger seat. Mm. I'll let whoever's watching this, listening to this, do with that what you want. But for us, that was a clear symbol that even though we don't know quite how that works, but, but he was without question with Joel. Oh yeah. And so I, I told you even before you told me about the yeah, story, yeah. didn't I feel it? I felt yeah. it. Yeah. 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 And what you just said was very dangerous to say, right? Because <laughs> people, because people, That's I'm me. just saying, but only because you don't know how someone's going to react to that. But I, I love that you said that. And thank you for having the, I, I would call that courageous, the, the courage to even suggest that to me because um, it was, it's so true. It's so true. Yeah. Thank you. you know, when, if we're afraid to say what's in our heart, then why even speak at all? Yeah, that's so good. That's good. Listen, I got to tell you, this has been an incredible conversation, an incredible journey that you took us on. I want to thank you for today. Yeah, you're welcome. You definitely have 
impacted my life and everybody listening. And I know that you are doing something incredible. And that's why your, your website is bigboldbrave.us. And I have it up there. But I also have something running across. It says block your calendar. July 13th through the 16th, <laughs> because I want you in New York. We're having an incredible event called Heroes Rising Apex, and where we're bringing coaches from all over the world, and I definitely want you there. I'm going to send you some information on it as That's well. Uh, I'll send you a speaker uh, questionnaire and all that stuff. What's one thing that you would say you have, and of course I've been taking notes, you could tell, right? That has impacted your life from when you were a little boy till even this morning, mm. one thing. Well, for me, the biggest impact is is definitely these last three and a half years of my life. And that was that what Gabriel taught me and is teaching me. Mm is that I had pockets of my life where I lived in cowardice. I was a coward. Mm. I actually mentioned that in my book. I called myself a coward. And as you know, those are fighting words, especially for men. Oh yeah. We don't like to be called cowards, but, but that's what he showed me because there were areas that I was not fully living out who I was created to be. There were risks that I hadn't been willing to take. One was writing a book. I'd known that I was going to write a book for years, mm. never had the courage to put pen to paper. You know, I, I knew that I wanted to make a shift and get into the personal development space rather than only be a pastor, which is a very wonderful vocation. But I just, I knew I wanted to make that shift, didn't have the courage to do it. So I could go on about a few different things that I felt like I lacked courage. You know what I think you, you and I need to do? Mm. You need to come back. <laughs> we have so much uh, untapped uh, stories that we There's have. There's a lot of layers. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I, lo I love the fact that you're in an onion and we've only peeled the top layer. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, definitely. And, and I, I think you also need to come on my Heroes Rising show, which I do twice a week, uh, twice a month, I'm sorry. And you have... Not only did Gabriel help guide you in these three and a half years of, of becoming a stronger person, mm -hmm. becoming even a better dad than you probably were before. I'm sure yeah. you were a great dad to yeah. Gabriel. But even understanding that your two other boys needed you, especially when yeah. Gabriel left you guys. But, and I, 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 I the more I think about it, the more I think that people come into our lives for a season, however long that season is. And if we allow them, they will guide us. They will teach us the lessons, including, listen, I talked about how grateful I was for the people who hurt me because they were put into my life to teach me, to guide me, right? Even when they were hurting me. Mm -hmm they were helping me. Yeah. That's so good. Can I, this is my parting shot. If you give me just a second here, of course, the other thing about not just for me personally and, and revealing the cowardice, but I'll tell you another thing that this kind of a death can do and why it's been such a positive trajectory, which sounds counterintuitive mm -hmm. 
is my empathy and my compassion for people after suffering this loss has really escalated. And I think that's important because what everybody needs to understand is, as you said very early in this conversation, none of us are guaranteed anything. You know, we don't even know if after this call, if you and I are still going to be around, we don't, we're not guaranteed it, but usually we respond to something like this one of two ways. We allow the pain to cause us to love less. Mm. We shrink back into ourselves. We don't want to risk the relationships and getting hurt again. And that comes in a lot of different forms, right? And we love less. Mm. Or we can allow a circumstance like this to allow our love and the expression of that love to go to a whole new level and it really be the driving value of our life. And I really feel like that's ultimately what is happening in our life. Mm, beautiful, beautiful. So, you know, we let's touch upon what we'll do. We'll take another five minutes or so and we'll t- t- touch upon your book, why you wrote your book. And then, you know, I'm going to want to sign copy, right? <laughs> that's right. That's, <laughs> I, have, I am. It's on its way already. I've been working right. on it off to the side. All right. Cool. Um, so what tell I, me what, what possessed you and you talked about courage, right? The courage to write the book. Yeah. It's funny this morning. I wrote the name of a book that I'm going to be writing. I've written so many books, but I haven't published any. Wow. Wow. And then I think I'm going to probably towards the middle or end of this year, I'm probably going to put a bunch of them out. Come on. At once. And see which one really hits. Hopefully they all hit. Or if none hit, here's here's my my idea. It'll be my legacy for my children, my great grandchildren. So they'll say, "Hey, did you read Grandpa's book or Great Grandpa's book?" Awesome. You know. So that's that's why I think we all need to write a book. And even if it doesn't get published, even if you just write it and leave it, your will to be passed down and down, so people can know about what you went through. Right. Yeah. That's so go ahead, good. tell us about your book. That was so good right there. Oh my gosh. And that that was in my thought process, mm. you know, as I wrote the book. But in short, you know, I could have waited longer to write this book if it was only a book about me suffering the loss of my son. Mm. But as most of your listeners have probably figured out by now, you know, he died 2019 at the end of 2019. So it was only a few months later that that COVID hit the world and the pandemic, of course changed our world and there has been extreme loss in so many different ways across the globe yes losing loved ones but also losing businesses and marriages you know divorce going up suicide depression you know just fill in the blanks right and i believe that the majority of the reason for that is just all the overwhelming fear Mm. that has been released through and this this is not a political statement doesn't matter which side you Mm. are on any of the arguments you know involving the pandemic itself i've Mm. met very few people that would argue that fear has been released all over the planet in ways that we've never experienced before and a lot of that just has to do with consumable media right it's in our we can get bad news every five seconds if we want to because it's right here in our hand (laughs) But I say that to say that's the reason why I wrote the book when I did is just because the world has suffered loss and and so many people are now shrinking back in fear and not chasing their dreams because they feel like 
there's maybe nothing to live for or that, mm. you know, at this point, I'm just going to try to stay safe inside my little, you know, abode here and try not to let the world touch me, you know, whatever the reasons are. So this book is really more about not just how to, in a healthier way, move forward through painful situations in life, but also to see the lessons in life along the way and learn how to use, like I talk a lot about how to maintain your peace in different circumstances, talk about giving your pain a purpose. I just, there's just so much in the book about how to live. It's a book about living Mm. and, and becoming courageous and not spending the rest of your life in a mundane career that you hate and never willing to start a side gig or do that thing you've really wanted to do or take that trip you've always wanted to go on. Mm -hmm. You know, it's really about that, Sifu. It's about living. Yeah. That's awesome. And, and look, Denise has been with us and she says, wow, the book comment was touching. (laughs) And of course here she is. Thank you for the comments, by the way, they're great. You know, people come into our lives for a reason in a season or a lifetime. Yes, and, and amen to that for sure. Um, you know, your story is is so touching, but you know, if you don't tell that story, and it may bring up emotions in you every time you tell it, and it should, yeah, because you loved your son, and you still do, right? So loved and still do, to me, are the same thing because yeah, you can love someone. Or you can be in love with someone, right? So I love my children. And no matter, even if they turn around and say, we never want to see you again, dad, Mm -hmm. I would still never lose that love for them. Absolutely. Right. But thank you for sharing your story because your story is going to help someone who may have lost someone. Yeah. Really quick, I've had the opportunity to say goodbye to people before they died. One being my brother, he was 42 years old. He knew he had two, two weeks to live. We were able to share that time with him. And then the other one was my mom. It was my intuition to go see her a week before she died. Wow. I spent a whole week with her and it was a beautiful time. And it was like, wow, something told me you have to go see your mom. You have no choice. You have to go make it happen. And I did. But we don't always get that opportunity to say our goodbyes, right? Yeah. And like you didn't get that opportunity. But we will get that opportunity to say hello again. Yeah. At another time when the time is right. Yeah. That's right. Okay. Thank you so much. Thank you for for all that you're doing. And for sharing and, and for, man, for all you're doing, for other people, for helping other people get through some of the tough challenges that, listen, life is not easy. You know it. Uh, so many people know it. Denise knows it. Anybody who I know knows it. Listen, unless you're in a, in a, in a bubble. Remember that movie uh, with John Travolta? He was the, the, the boy in the <laughs> yeah. bubble. yeah. Right. Even then, there was suffering, right? So you cannot put anyone in a bubble and protect them, especially I'm talking to helicopter parents. Let your kids Mm -hmm. fall down. It's okay, right? So thank you so much. 
for being with me today. Do me a favor. We're going to say goodbye to everybody, but I want you to stick around for a minute or two. All Sounds right? good. Thank you for everybody. What do we what do we want you to do today? We want you to have an exceptional day and reach out. Yesterday was Valentine's Day. Did you love yourself too? Mm. Right? So good. Yeah. You have to love yourself. Before, listen, it's 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 the old airplane wisdom. Put the oxygen mask on you before you do it to anybody else. Love yourself so that you can love, you can have more love for others, right? All right, my friend. Thank you so much. Have an amazing rest of your day. You as well. All right. Thank bye you. Bye.